Okay. Wow. So another new year. Another new year. 2021. Wow. So, welcome to Murder and Mystery. I'm your host, Summer. And I'm Lisa. And Happy New Year! Happy New Year. Welcome to 2021. Same stuff, different year. Don't delude yourself. (laughs) Nothing changes but the date. Right. Nothing changes but, but let's be hopeful, I guess, right? Yeah, this one's old enough to drink. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay, so how, how was your New Year's Eve? New Year's was good. My daughter turned two. We had cake. We watched movies and had a good time. I had a blast taking her to build a Yes, yes. And everybody was asleep by like 9.30 or 10. I stayed up until midnight. I stayed up until a little past midnight too. Uh, Yeah. Me, uh, Eli and I were the only ones that were awake. Yeah, everybody else was sound asleep. But, you know. I try to think. I think we all stayed up. We left um, over at Mom's and came home. Mm -hmm. And we all stayed up until right at midnight. And then, like... It Started was like, filing to bed. Happy New Year. Let's Sleep. go to bed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that was, that was basically it. the way it. you do it. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And then celebrated New Year's Day with a big pot of black-eyed peas. I did not do anything. I didn't. You didn't? No black-eyed peas? No black-eyed peas. They didn't help me last year. Didn't figure they'd help me this year much. I think I forgot you them know. last year, so I blame that. For you know, people say that that they, that that they they think so, but I I participated in the the tradition, and it still was twenty twenty. So <laughs> I didn't eat any this year, and I didn't force my husband and children to eat any either. So we'll see. So we'll see what happens, and if twenty twenty one is just a repeat, you guys can blame me for it. I'll take responsibility <laughs> for not eating the beans this year. Well. <laughs> Who knows? Peas, no peas. I don't peas, think no it matters. Peas. I don't either. I really don't. I feel um, like nobody yelled Jumanji either at midnight. So I didn't yell Jumanji. No, nobody did. I didn't hear any of it. So And we did laundry. And you're not supposed to yeah, do laundry. Yeah, I did laundry so. too. And you know what the silliest part about it? I had read that for the first time on New Year's Day. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. That's like an excuse not to do chores on New Year's right. Day, right? And then I think we did a load of laundry at like 7 o'clock that night. <laughs> And it wasn't until the next day that I went, oh, no, we did laundry yesterday. Yeah. I did laundry so, and dishes. Yeah. And, and I didn't eat know, the, yeah. bee, the peas. So, so. that's, <laughs> yep, it's our fault, guys. There you go. <laughs> so, are we ready to jump into Let's season two? Season two. And we have a good one. I am so excited because this is a story that I cut my true crime teeth on. All right. In middle school. Middle school. Um, It's part of the reason that I chose to go on my career path as a therapist. Um, I really got into serial killers when I was about 12, 13 yeah. Um, you probably don't really remember that a whole lot because no, you were I was, little. I was very young, yeah. <laughs> but I started reading everything I could get my hand on, hands on about serial killers. Yeah. At one point to become a lawyer because I wanted to, you know, work with criminals and especially 
that type of criminal. But yeah. then I changed my mind and I went into psychology. Mm-hmm. And now I'm a child therapist. Um, but That are I, desperately needed. I mean, because if you're going to help a person, you're going to help them from the beginning. Right. With the serial killers, though, probably helped you form that opinion because the most thing the serial killers have in common are terrible childhoods. Yes. Misunderstood traumas, misdiagnosed mental illnesses, and that is the makings, like, the base layer of a serial killer. Really? And you, you know, can see, I have worked with some kids that, you know... You could see where it would happen. Right. I mean, we did foster care for a very long time, and, mm-hmm. and I think Mom and I took in over 300 kids... Um, or 300 families, more kids than that, at a time, you know, the whole time we did foster care. And yeah, you could see, you could see how some of these kids' circumstances, you know, and the shuffle and the trauma would lead to that very easily. Yeah. I mean, you can't almost, you almost can't blame them once you look back at the things that they endured, you know. Right. I- any person would end up with some sort of, you know, issue. Right. And and stuff. And so going into child therapy maybe is like your your way of intervening. (laughs) Being like, hold on, we're going to create fewer serial killers. Try to at least. Try to. Try to. Do your best. But yeah. So we're going to go back to a simpler time. A time when it seemed that things were more innocent and things felt safer. A time when you could easily disappear. There wasn't cell phones, social media... You couldn't really keep track of people as easily. Um, hitchhiking was safe and common. acceptable. Common. Very common. Common. Very, very common. I mean, a thrill, right? Amongst right. Older teenagers. Yeah. And right? it was really the... It was a, a culture. Common, it was a culture. Yeah. The, the transient hitchhiking, hey, let's go this way, let's see who's going our way kind of you right? know, thing. Yeah. The summer was about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, so we're going to go back to the 60s. Awesome. And we're going to talk about a man who, some say, ended America's innocence. You've most likely heard about this person, but I didn't know all the details about what went down until I really started this research. I mean, I kind of, you know, had this idea. I had actually read a book. Yeah. Um, I had watched movies and stuff, but... Really, there are a lot of rabbit holes to chase here, <laughs> and I went down a lot of them All right. in this. So, I hope you don't mind getting lost a little bit in this, <laughs> but I just find this person fascinating because he's really a chameleon. Yes. He was able to blend in with anyone and was so charming that no matter what he was saying, people listened. Yeah. That was the amazing thing. That people listened to this man. And though I could always, when I saw him on TV, when I saw these pictures, what I saw at that time was I could see this hate and this evilness. Mm-hmm. And I always thought, you know, what I saw was this devil. And it was like, how could people fall for this? But in doing this research and stuff and seeing these pictures from this different time, you know, you really, you saw him differently. You know, you saw what other people saw. In fact, this man once said, look down at me and you see a fool. Look up at me and you see a God. Look straight at me and you see yourself. 
So this man, of course, is Charles Manson. Yeah. And so today we're going to talk about the Manson cult murders. So before we get into this hot take, I am one of the few people that don't think Manson is an evil person. You don't? I'm going to put it out there. People say they look at him and see pure evil. I look at him and I see a lot of mental illness. I look at him and I see somebody who has a mental disease that has been able to propel himself and uh, project himself as this charismatic leader. And he, like he's right. You look at him and you see yourself because he can relate to anyone. Mm-hmm. Because he can pick out. I mean, he's, he's a, a good predator, but I don't think... He's an evil predator. I think he just knew how to get around in life by reading people because that's what he always had to do. I would agree that, yeah, that's what he had to do. That was you his know, way that of was surviving. his life. That was his life. Now, the, the things that he wanted to accomplish and the things he was trying to achieve, absolutely horrifying. But look at a lot of mentally ill people who have come after him that wanted the same things. You know, I think he was probably just the first with that particular notion and that's why people thought he was so evil and so, you know, this evil incarnate devil himself. And I think people didn't like how much they liked him. Yeah. I think that's what it was because you can look at, uh, at videos of him and you see it. You see the charm. You see the, the look. You see the, the ideology behind him. And mm-hmm. you see why these people flock to it. Oh, yeah. And as a, a member of the public, you are very, very concerned about yourself when you go, oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait. We can't look at him like that. Right. You know? <laughs> but that's right. what those people saw. That's what yeah. they saw. You know? And he's absolutely right. If you look at him from different angles, you see different things. He learned mm-hmm. how to be that way. He did. He he was definitely something. Yes. So let's look at his early life. November 12, 1934, Charles My- Miles Maddox was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, to a 16-year-old Kathleen Maddox, who was an alcoholic and a prostitute. So At 16. Yeah. So Different mother, times. His mother was a prostitute. Yeah. His father was Colonel Walker Henderson Scott. He had told Kathleen he was a colonel in the army, and shortly after she told him she was pregnant, he was deployed on a secret mission. <laughs> she later learned that Colonel was his given name, and he was a known con artist whom had run away from his responsibility as a father. Oh, that sounds about right. Secret so mission. <laughs> colonel was actually his name. He was not a colonel in anything. So Not Kath- a ranking. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So Kathleen Maddox married William Manson in August 1934, just three months before Charles was born. Okay. That was pretty common around then, too. Right. If you could find a man gracious enough to take you on, you know. Yeah. So this man swooped in and was going to be her savior. Right. And he was going to be a dad and, you know, the whole thing. This marriage lasted three years. When William filed for divorce citing gross neglect of duty by his wife, whom often went drinking with her brother and left Charles with multiple babysitters. So while William Manson was out working and trying to make a living and trying to take care of his family, she's off drinking their money away. Exactly. And leaving leaving the baby with multiple babysitters and, you know, not taking care of the house and the baby. 
So when Charles was five, his mother was arrested and sent to prison for assault and for robbery. So oh, when man. He, yeah. So Charles went to live with his aunt and uncle in West Virginia. His mother was paroled in 1942 when Charles was eight. So from the time Charles was five till he was eight, mom had been arrested and he's Not living, in the picture, right? Right. Yeah. So the family moved to Charleston, West Virginia, and then to Indianapolis, where his mother married again. From the age of nine, Charles was in trouble with school for truancy. He claimed to have set fire to his school at one point, and he was in trouble for petty theft. This was the start of a long career of crime, institutionalism, and later incarceration. Hmm. But look at mom. Yeah, look at the look at the uh, pattern he had to follow. Right. You know. I mean, I would have loved to have been able to do a battery of tests and assessments on him and to have worked with him as a child. Yeah. I think that really the problem was mom. Oh, probably. I think that really an early diagnosis of attachment disorder. Yeah. And contact, conduct disorder in his teens and probably a personality disorder in adulthood yeah. is what we're looking at here. I th- think... And probably caused solely from mom and her inability to take care of and ability to neglect him. Right. Frequently. Right. Yeah. Just Absolutely. Leaving him alone, he had no attachment to his mother. He had no attachment really to anybody. He learned he was himself. He, he himself was who he could rely on very right. early on. Yeah. Exactly. So the second time he was released from Terminal Island, this was a prison. Mm -hmm. This was in March 1967. He had spent 17 years of his 32 years of life in prison. Okay, so that's that's life. That's adulthood. Yeah. he, He spent his entire adulthood in an institution. Right. You know, which was the way with a lot of those people that had that type of childhood. You know, that was Mm -hmm. the only care they ever received was when they were locked up. Right. Yeah. So, 17 of his 32 years of life had been in prison or some other institution. So, according to Victor Boglosi, the chief prosecutor in the Manson trial, when he was released, he had actually asked them to keep him because it was the only home he had ever known. He yeah. had never had a stable home except for an institution. So I've heard of this happening to people. Um, a lot of people become institutionalized when they live in these types of situations. You know, we had a cousin, Chris. Yeah. That was the same way. Yeah. And um, before he died, I had a talk with him, and he told me he preferred to be in prison. Yeah, that's the only safety they know. That's the only security because mm-hmm. it's that or it's run the streets and take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And though people like that are rarely successful at doing that, you know. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I know I know people present in a day right now that are in prison or in jail just because that's what they prefer to be in. Yeah. It's easier than for them than trying to live amongst everyone, conform to what, you know, people think they should be doing and, you know, try to pull themselves out of that gutter they've, you know, built. Right. You know, and, and they're, I mean, institutional, they, it, institutionalization is exactly the word for it. Like right. they, they would rather have that schedule, that discipline that I know what's going to happen every second of my day mm-hmm. other than to be free 
and get into no, who knows what. You know, I've known yeah. people that commit crimes to go back to jail. On exactly. Purpose, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But three despite, squares in a bed. You know, right. better than most could do by themselves. Right. And they know that their family's taken care of mm-hmm. because they're drawing some type of check or something. Or something. And they or they're just not it. interfering anymore. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So, but despite this, he was released at the age of 32. Um, at this point, Manson had only been for, been in the free world for a few years at a time, between being institutionalized or incarcerated since the age of 13. My goodness. The one thing that came out of this was an interest in music and an ability to persuade others to do what he wanted. He had learned that. I mean, obviously, he had learned all the tricks in the book between... You know, social workers and psychiatrists. That was his life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was his whole adulthood was learning how to work that system. And can you you imagine being pushed out into the real world after this very strict institutionalism and always knowing what to expect and having somebody telling you what to do and then all of a sudden you're free with these unlimited possibilities and nowhere to go and nobody to tell you what to do. I was going to say, and it's, it's unlimited possibility with almost zero potential though. Like they get, they get put out there with nothing. They get put out with absolutely nothing told to make the best of a bad situation. They would rather just turn around and walk back in the gates. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's no different. And I understand that. No home, no family, no No home. home, nothing, having no attachment to anyone. You know, scary. That's that has to be terrifying to feel so loose. Right. There's no anchor for those people. So shortly after his release, he met a librarian from San Francisco named Mary Bruner. Okay. She was 24 years old and from Wisconsin. She very quickly took up with Manson and invited him into her home. Okay. So he went from prison to this woman's home and he moved in with her it didn't take long before she had quit her job and the two of them decided to take off in a van and start traveling up and down the coast okay so he talked this librarian i mean you know that stereotypical stuffy librarian quiet demure type yes talked her into just giving up everything and Taking driving off. up and down the coast. I mean, a librarian has to have a master's degree. Yeah. This was a very well-educated woman who had spent a lot of time working toward that degree yeah. and just throw it away. Yeah. And during this time, Mary became pregnant and gave birth to a boy that she named Valentine Charles Manson and nicknamed Pooh Bear. Okay. Shortly after Manson moved in with Mary, he started talking about recruiting another young woman and bringing her into the family. So he started talking about having a third. Okay. Mary was very hesitant at first. She agreed. Uh, As her family grew, she became kind of the mother figure of this cult. They didn't really call it a cult. They called it their family. Yes. This was... What he wanted, and he had a lot of power and control over Mary, so she kind of agreed. And the second woman was named Lynette Frome, whom was 19 at the time. Lynette, whose nickname was Squeaky, came from a good family background where her father was an aeronautical engineer, which is what my son is working on. It's not an easy career. So her dad was really smart. 
made good money. Stable home. Very stable home. Yes. Mom was a housewife, so grew up with the mom right there, uh, taking care of her, always had, you know, that good, stable home. As a child, she was part of a popular dance troupe. But in high school, she began to experiment with drugs. And after she graduated, she started college but had a falling out with her family. And she dropped out of college. Lynette was homeless when she met Manson and joined his family. So now you've got this homeless girl, 19 years old, kind of floating around in the 60s on drugs. Picks up with Manson and Mary and their little baby. They're in the van, traveling around. So, this is the start of that little cult. Okay. So, she she said she found Manson's philosophies and ideas appealing. And his attitude was charming. Shortly after Lynette moved in, they began to travel the West Coast and add others to their family. These followers were mostly female, but they also had some men join. He offered drugs, sex, and a connection that the members were lacking in their own families. Mary Bruner, at the age of 24, was the oldest, and Diana Lake, at the age of 14, was the youngest, aside from the various children that came with the parents or were born into the cult. Yes. Uh, So, Manson gained companionship. He gained followers that listened to all of his thoughts. They helped bring money into the commune and further his cause. By bringing money in, um, they were involved in selling drugs, um, car heist, Mm -hmm. things like that. They weren't legal activities. No, (laughs) petty petty thefts, things like that, anything they could fence at pawn shops. They they really didn't make a lot of money. No. They were one of the cults that we've had experienced here in America that were poor, honestly, and it was more just a bunch of patchwork people. It wasn't organized. It wasn't, you know, because they didn't have legitimate jobs. Nobody had anything to back up anything. But this was the way Manson grew up. Exactly. They didn't know, and, you know, other than some of his followers did have stable home lives, not many of them did, though, and not many of them knew what it was like to have a steady job or to have a steady income even. Right. So in the summer of 1968, Patricia Krenwinkel and Ella Jo Bailey, two family members, were hitchhiking near Pacific Palisades. And this is a really nice part of California. Let's kind of take a break from the story and let's talk about these two girls before we get into what they what they contribute to this story mm-hmm. because the story is really fixing to go in a whole different, different direction. direction. <laughs> um, because up to this point, they're just a what I would say is a hippie cult. Um, they never considered themselves to be a hippie cult. But they're driving around in these vans and these motorcycles. They're living on the beach and wherever they can crash. They're, you know, selling drugs. They're having parties. They're, you know, stealing cars, things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, they're a hippie cult. Yeah. So, Patricia was 21 years old at this time. She came from a broken home and reported a childhood of being bullied for being overweight and having excessive hair on her arms. 
When her parents divorced, she went to three different high schools and had a stepsister who introduced her to drugs and alcohol. Her mother moved to Alabama when she was 17, and she chose to stay with her father so she could finish high school. Mm-hmm. After high school, she went to Alabama and considered becoming a nun. I mean, she'd okay. been bullied. She yeah. really didn't have a lot of friends. You know, she... She didn't see much of a way for herself. Right. She started college but returned to California after one semester. She moved in with her stepsister, who was a heroin addict. And it was here that she met Charles Manson. Manson referred to her as Pat and described her as not a prize winner for beauty, but she had smarts. At one time, she had been pretty deep into the Bible It was easy to see she didn't believe in herself as much as she wanted others to believe. Mm. So, she had a very low self-esteem. Yes. She was very susceptible to anybody that would believe in her. And here's this very charismatic man who comes along and... Okay, you might not be that pretty, but you know You're what? You're real smart, and You're we could s- use you. Yeah. Yeah. So come with us. Gives her some sort of purpose and acceptance in her life. Right. Yeah. She fell in love with him. And at her 2011 parole hearing, she said, it seemed like a way out. He seemed like the answer. He seemed like my salvation at the time. Yeah. I bet, yeah. So, this sweet, young, and desperate woman who once wanted to be a nun found herself so wrapped up in Manson, so mesmerized by him that she would do anything for him. She later said, I wanted this man's love. Anytime I saw something I normally would be against, any of the values I held, I began to justify it. I rationalized it. The more I did the more I lost any values I had. She lost herself in this man. Mm -hmm. She completely gave up everything she believed in, everything, and rationalized it to make it fit into his beliefs. Yeah. Because she wanted him to love her so much. Yeah. I mean, she'd never had that. That makes sense. Right. I mean, and here you have this person who's obviously popular, attractive, you uh-huh. know, and, and wanting her to be a part of the group, actively seeking her out to be a part of their group. Yeah, I'm sure. She was, you know, willing to do whatever it took. Yeah. A lot of them were like that. A lot of them. He filled a need in them. He saw what it was. So she became so lost in Manson and his way of life, his cult, that she even allowed him to change her name to Katie. Because he told her that their names belong to the past. Okay. So he Dead naming, that's, yeah. that's a thing. Yeah. Ella Jo Bailey was also 20 when she met Anson. Uh, she was born in Omaha, Nebraska and went to high school in Holland, Michigan. Little was known about her family. She is thought to have moved to San Francisco after high school and became a roommate with another Manson family member, Susan Atkins. Mm-hmm. They both met Manson and became followers at the same time. Ella was not involved with any of the major murders by the Manson family, but she was part of a pivotal turn for Manson. Okay. So, back to where we were at the beginning. Okay. Patricia and Ella were hitchhiking 
They were picked up by Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys. Yes. Not a lot of people understand the connection between the Wilson family and the Manson clan. Right. And this is huge. It's a huge thing that, like, if you were around, it's kind of known, like, especially older people, like, back in the day, they were like, yeah, we heard about that. But everybody just kind of shrugged their shoulders at it. And now when you look back at it, you're going, oh, my God, he was in a popular rock band hanging out with (laughs) Charles Manson regularly on the regular. Yes. Well, and remember, when Manson was in prison, he became very interested in music. Music, yes. Well, Dennis picked these girls up, and he took them to his house, and he partied with them all night. And the next day, he left for his recording studio, and the two girls were still asleep. He came home that night, and he found Manson. And many other members of the family had taken up residence in his home. Mm-hmm. In many articles, it stated that Manson met him in his driveway, dropped to his knees, and kissed Dennis's feet. And that's how he met Manson. They stayed for months, during which time they wrecked his cars, they took his belongings, they partied nonstop. While the cult members were partying and rubbing elbows with famous musicians... Manson was trying to get his big break. Yes. He showed Dennis and his producers songs he had written, and his goal was to get in his get his music, you know, get into the band, basically. Yes, yeah. He wanted this so badly, and the music producer finally agreed with Manson to help him record some of his music if the family would leave the home. But the deal wasn't concrete. It was enough, though, to get Manson and the family out of the to home. To go, yes. <laughs> so during this time with Dennis Wilson, Manson truly felt he'd made progress in his music career. He and Dennis played together. Uh, Manson showed him all of his songs. Uh-huh. In a few articles I read, they indicated that Dennis introduced Manson to several other musicians, mm-hmm. um, not just his own bandmates, and that... Dennis actually wanted Manson to join the Beach Boys. Oh, really? I mean, Dennis became really close with Manson. Yes. And it wasn't Manson that was the problem. It was the cult members that was the problem. Yeah. In one interview after Dennis's death, uh, one of the bandmates said that Dennis introduced him saying Charles was the wizard man. Oh, okay. Yeah. For Manson, it seemed like he had really made it, and this was his big shot. They were an, they were a means to an end for him. Yeah. Only at all. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he had this big shot. He was going to be a rock star. Then things went bad. Uh, Dennis's producer, Terry Melcher, was the one that pushed him out of his life. Yeah. And um, I, think, I don't think Manson ever got over that. No, it was a rejection. Like... I actually, there's a documentary, or at least there used to be on Netflix, about this very specific certain thing, and it mm-hmm. was about the Wilsons' relationship with the Manson family. And it just focuses on him shopping his demos for him, mm-hmm. him doing all these business transactions for Manson, trying to get him in, you know, through the stuff. Nobody thought Manson was good. I mean, honestly, everybody really thought that he had brainwashed him just like he had brainwashed the rest of the cult members because nobody really thought he could do anything with it except for Wilson. Well, they actually recorded one of Manson's songs. 
They did, and a lot of people don't know yeah. that either. You they know? changed the title, and they changed a few of the words. Um, but not many. No. Honestly, not many. <laughs> they, they retitled it Never Learn Not to Love, and they didn't give any of the credit to Manson. Nope. Pushed um, him out completely. Yeah. Did him wrong, honestly. So, um, when this happened, a friend and collaborator of the Beach Boys said in an article that one day... On the day after Never Learn Not to Love was recorded, Manson took a bullet out and showed it to Dennis. He gave it to him and told him that every time he looks at it, he wants him to be thankful that his kids are still safe. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there is... He didn't make the best enemy. He didn't didn't choose the best person to cut out. Like, he really didn't. Uh, Dennis threw Manson to the ground and beat the shit out of him. (laughs) <laughs> Dennis Wilson never talked about his months with Manson, and later, when interviewed, he would acknowledge that he spent time with him, but would not talk about any of the details of that time. And this seems to be what pushed Manson over the edge and sent him and his family from common petty criminals and drug addicts mm-hmm. to an all-out murder cult. Because up to that point, Manson was really looking for his big break. He really hadn't gone over the edge. Um, they were a hippie cult. Yeah. And here this just kind of fell in his lap, and things were going great, and he thought he had made it. And then he got pushed out. His dreams got crushed, and they stole his song. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that just... Told him he wasn't worth anything, but just enough for them to take his idea. Right. You know, every, all of those years that he worked, he felt like they just took him and threw him in the, in, in the trash. Yeah. Like, he really did. And that was a breaking point. That was the straw on the back. Like, that was, that was it for him. So, the Manson family moved to Spawn Ranch. This is where several old television shows had once been recorded, including Bonanza and The Lone Ranger. It's a very cool place, and I think to this day you can go tour. I think you can. Yeah, I think they at least have parts of it open. George Spawn, the owner, welcomed them, and the members, uh, they agreed to work at the ranch. Uh Uh-huh. So George Spawn was elderly, and he was in really bad shape. The family helped repair some of the buildings, um, made them into homes, few of the women moved into George's home where they lived and provided care for him. People came and went from the ranch, squatted in some of the outer buildings. They were running drugs and weapons from the buildings. They kind of stayed far away from the main house. And Mr. Spawn was happy with the company. You know, he had been living out there. He's this blind old man by himself you know who'd been living out there by himself since these television shows had ended and he he didn't have help again he was filling a void he saw the need and could fill it for this man he gave him uh you know companionship he gave him help around the the farm you know helped him get his buildings back up and you know yeah Took advantage of the situation fully. He knew that man could be taken advantage of. Yeah. So, Mr. Spawn was very fond of Manson. They spent a lot of time. They discussed philosophy. He had these girls that were taking care of him that were like daughters to him. Mm -hmm. And then all of this other stuff was taking place on the outer fringes of the ranch and was kind of kept away from him. Yeah. He didn't even really know what was happening. Yeah. So up to this point, the group had traveled around using drugs, having sex, making trouble. 
They lived by their own set of rules and by philosophy that was loosely put together by Manson. Mm-hmm. They were a typical group of hippies. Yeah. Now, they would not like to be called that. No. Manson never considered himself a hippie. No. Never. But he really was. I mean, he had this philosophy. He felt like he was living by his own set of rules. He felt like, you know, he was going to change the world. Mm-hmm. And what what were hippies at that time? And the same things, yeah. You know? Um, so, at least, this is what it looked like. He was playing this part. He blended in with this hippie culture. You know, he was really, he was a chameleon, and he was this master manipulator. Mm-hmm. He didn't really believe in this counterculture, though. Uh, he used it to his advantage. Yeah. He really wanted to make the most of his music career. He really wanted this fame. He wanted this success. In all reality, what Manson wanted <laughs> was mainstream fame. Yeah. He yeah. was not really a hippie, and I guess that's why he said, you know, he really hated when people called him a hippie and called them a hippie cult. Because but, that was that was not his personal beliefs. It was just the means to the end. Right. Yeah. But he used that. He used this counterculture because they were easy to manipulate. He used yeah. the girls in his cult to trade for sex. To trade sex and get what he wanted. Um, he used that with the music scene. I mean, they're the ones who got him in with Dennis Wilson. Yeah. He used them with some of the other musicians. He helped these other people that he had these connections with were bringing drugs in. Yeah. You know, this is what got him the money that he needed. It was, these people were his means to an end. Yeah. Well, they were his employees. He had yeah. he was on top with all the moving parts underneath him and no one was benefiting more than he was. Yeah. He made sure of that completely. Well, and then he used drugs and money and even used the secrets, the crime mm-hmm. to control all of these people. Yeah. Well, and, and his word was bonded. Look, we're bonded. Look yeah. what we've done. We're bonded. And that's what a lot of the family members will say. That was a mm-hmm. word they used often. They were bonded. They did these things together. They ran drugs. They did crimes. You know, they mm-hmm. they did all this stuff together. So they would all stay together or they would all go down. Yeah. You know. So from the outside, they look like this ordinary hippie cult if you saw them if a you, commune just a yeah. regular you know normal commune of, of like-minded people that happened quite often in the 60s if you walked you into know. one of their their groups and you sat with them for a while you sat around the fire you heard him strumming his guitar you heard him ranting about his philosophy that's what it would look like yeah. this drug-fueled hippie commune But really, this was a very tightly controlled and planned agenda that he had, Mm -hmm. that he was controlling. He was the mastermind, and he controlled all of those moving pieces. People just didn't realize that. So their movement to Spawn Ranch really seemed to solidify the core family and transform them from this gang of hippies, really, to this more of a doomsday cult. Yeah. 
because when they moved to Spawn Ranch, it was very isolated. Mm-hmm. This isolated the family and made them more reliant on each other. Mm-hmm. Then there was Manson himself. He started using manipulation, charisma, drugs, and violence to keep the family in line. He started restricting their movements. He had several family members that came and went from the ranch making drug deals, weapons trades, and stuff to keep the family fed and supply drugs and money. But others, he wouldn't let them off the ranch. Yeah. You know, he really isolated some of these core members and stuff, and he used drugs to manipulate them. Yeah. And they didn't leave because he was supplying them with the drugs that they felt like they needed. So there were also members of the Manson family that didn't live on the ranch. They lived outside of the ranch, and they reported back to Manson. Mm -hmm. And this is how he got information from what was going on outside of the ranch. This is how he knew where to go to get things that he Mm -hmm. needed and to make these Like reconnaissance groups. Right. Yeah. So, Manson had always had a racist ideology Mm -hmm. and a rejection of mainstream life that had drawn his followers to him. And after moving to the ranch, a series of events that seemed to, there was a series of events that seemed to push Manson over the edge. Um, First, there was the failed music career. Mm -hmm. There was all of that. He'd been waiting on this big break that never came, and then the Beach Boys stole his song, and he just, there was this anger and this rage. Yes. Then there was a bad drug deal that he and some of his male followers believed was a connection to the Black Panthers. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, lastly, there was the release of the Beatles' White Album that had their song, Helter Skelter. hmm And Manson became obsessed with this song. Manson spent hours deconstructing the song and believed it was a written message for him and his family that an apocalyptic race war was coming. Yes. So, Manson believed the Beatles sent him and his family a message in that song. About a race war. About a race war. In America. In America. <laughs> From a British band. Yes. Yeah. Um, so. We could do a whole episode on his delusions and rights. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. The mental illness behind those thoughts. Manson began to spend his nights around a bonfire delivering drug-fueled talks about his prophetic, apocalyptic visions that he called Helter Skelter, which would be a war between black and white people. During this time, Manson brought more people into the family, and this included ex-convicts he had met in prison, and members of the straight satanic biker gang that he befriended and started hanging out with at the ranch. This fueled the racism and the violence of the family and gave them more access to weapons. So as this anger starts building and the drugs start getting 
worse. The drug use starts getting worse. Manson starts tipping over the edge. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like he's having a big psychotic break here. He's really, really going psychotic. Yeah. yeah. And instead of getting mental health help, he is... He's building followers. Yeah. That's following these delusions and believing him in these delusions. And not only are they giving him more drugs, they're giving him weapons. (laughs) Yeah. Seems like a good thing. Right. It's believed that Manson had at least 100 followers spread throughout Los Angeles, but his core group was at the ranch. The followers committed robbery, stole cars, and ran drugs to provide money for the cult. So all of these, you know, at least 100 followers that lived outside of the ranch, they were the ones doing the petty crimes and Mm -hmm. stuff and bringing in the money and stuff. The core group seldom left the ranch. Yes. They, They visited the ranch and interacted with the core group. The males in the core group would also go out with Manson to commit petty crimes, and to make drug deals. So the males were actually able to leave with Manson. Yes. So Manson was very controlling of this core group that he had built Mm -hmm. and stuff. So the outside followers, they were the ones that, you know, they just weren't on the inside of this gang. They were there, but they weren't in the trusted circle. The ones that were in the trusted circle were very tightly controlled. Yes. Uh, The women of the group rarely left the ranch unless they were asked to run special errands by Manson. It was believed that the family was involved in at least 35 murders, but the family were only convicted in a few. Yes. So here we're going to introduce some of the other family members. Okay. Charles Watson was more commonly called Tex. Yep. He was 22 when he joined the Manson family. He grew up in Dallas, and he was an A student and a star athlete in high school. One of his neighbors called him the typical boy next door, and he started using drugs in college and moved to California in 1967, where he started dealing drugs. It was then that he joined the Manson family and quickly became one of Manson's right-hand men. So... We're introducing Tex here because he becomes a key player in the events over the next couple of months. So Tex becomes one of Manson's, you know, closest in the core group. Yes, yeah. In July 1969, Tex Watson came up with a plan to purchase a large amount of drugs and resell them for a profit. Okay. Of course, this was for Manson. Not having the money himself... Tex went to an ex-girlfriend, Luella, to introduce him to a contact she had that could supply the money. Okay. So, he's looking for somebody who can supply him money to purchase these drugs, to be able to sell them, to bring in money for Manson. Luella introduces Tex to Bernard Lotsapapa Crow. Tex wasn't looking for a loan or partner to a drug deal. He was planning to steal the money. Okay. Crow didn't trust Tex when he met him, so he decided to drive Tex and Luella to a location where the transaction was to take place. Tex wasn't looking for a loan or a partner to his 
drug deal. Okay. He was planning to steal the money. All right. Sounds like a good yeah, plan. Good huh? plan. Good plan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Crow didn't trust Tex, and when he met him, he decided to drive Tex and Luella to a location where the transaction was to take place and keep Luella in the car with bodyguards until Tex returned the drugs. With the drugs. Till Tex returned with the drugs. Yes. Tex received the cash and left to meet his dealer, but he never returned. Crow had already called Spawn Ranch and talked to Manson, who told him that Tex had fled the ranch weeks ago. Crow did not believe this and threatened Manson. Okay. Manson is not somebody that you want to threaten at this point. No. So, this worried Manson, so he and another family member, Thomas Wallman, went to Crow's home. Wallman was supposed to kill Crow, but he couldn't do it, so Manson took the gun and shot Crow in the stomach. He thought he had killed him, but he didn't. Sounds about right. Yeah. So, Manson becomes paranoid that the Black Panthers were after him for killing Crow, which he didn't do. Yes. <laughs> and this paranoia was strengthened when Manson heard the next day that a body of a Black Panther member had been found killed from a shooting. However, Crow ended up recovering from his injuries, and he was not a member of the Black Panthers. <laughs> so he's just woefully misinformed about yes. everything. Yes. And he's just like paranoid over everything. Yeah. So Manson invited the straight Satan motorcycle gang, to help protect the family from the Black Panthers. Okay. In return for their protection, he offered them company of the female family members and drugs. Manson also invited Bobby Bosolil, a wannabe biker he met in Topanga Canyon. Okay. It's getting good, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Escalating quickly. Bobby Bosalil met Manson in Topanga Canyon in the music scene. He heard that Manson had invited the straight Satans to the ranch, and he really wanted to impress the bikers. Okay. So Bosalil petitioned Manson to let him join them and help with the protection. He began to make drug runs for the bikers and eventually bought drugs from a friend of his, a grad student at UCLA named Gary Hinman. Ella Jo Baker, one of the hitchhikers that introduced Manson to Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys, stated in an interview that she also knew Gary Hinman. Okay. She told Manson that Bosalil and Bosalil that Hinman had won money from a scratch-off lottery ticket. She stated that she felt she was the reason Hinman got involved with Manson family because Bosalil did not mention Hinman until after she did. Uh-huh. Okay. So... <laughs> Now we've got, I don't know what here, I don't know, this a big mess, mess. A mess. So we've got a wannabe biker. Yes. A satanic biker gang <laughs> who's protecting them from the Black Panthers who don't even know that they exist. This, yes, it's it's a mess. Yeah. And a grad student that they brought into this picture for some reason. Yes. Because he supposedly won money from scratch-off. So the straight Satans complained that the drugs were bad, and Bosalil went to get their money back from Hinman. He may have thought that Hinman had a lot of money due to his lottery winnings, and he intended to get all of his money 
not just the money from the drugs. Okay. They fought, and both of them were injured. <laughs> so, Bosolo called Manson, who came back, and in this fight, mm-hmm. somehow, Hinman's face gets slashed with a sword. Oh, okay. And then the whole group flays the scene. Okay, that's probably a good idea. So now Bosalil's worried that Hinman is going to call the police. So he stabs him to death on July 27th. And then he tries to cover his tracks by drawing cat paw prints. <laughs> okay, so now All he right. draws, he stabs him cat, to death. Cat paw prints. He draws cat paw prints and writes political piggy in blood on the walls. Okay. So is this starting yeah, to... Yeah, sound familiar. Yeah. So Bosalil knew Manson from before the ranch and when his muse in you know in his musical yeah. days and stuff and during that time he hadn't started calling his plan helter skelter because he hadn't heard of that term before uh-huh but he had talked about some of the plan and he had listened to some of these political um, rants mm-hmm. and some of the paranoia over the Black Panthers. Yeah. So he knew it would be most acceptable for the cult to cover up the crime scene like this. Yeah. So Bosalil was arrested August 6, 1969. Ella Joe stated she was so shook up by Hinman's death that she fled the ranch and never had any contact with the family again. Okay. That's a smart so, move. Yeah. yeah. Wise. August 1969, there were many theories as to what really happened during the summer of 69. There are several articles, books, documentaries, and movies that are made about the Manson cult. Mm -hmm. Even interviews with different family members, and all of them differ on what they actually think happened. Yeah. So, one theory is that Charles Manson started to believe that Helter Skelter Apocalypse that he'd seen in his visions needed a push. Mm-hmm. And so he believed his family was supposed to ignite the fire that would fuel this war between the blacks and whites. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big one. I had heard of that before. Well, yeah, a pretty widely accepted one. Yeah. Another theory is that Tex Watson stole money from lots of Papa Crow and Manson shot him believing that he was he had killed him. This made Manson paranoid about the Black Panthers, like we had said, mm-hmm. um, which led him to bringing the straight Satans and Bobby Bosalil. Mm-hmm. Then led Bobby Bosalil into trying to cover up the murder of Henman by framing the Black Panthers. And when he was arrested, Manson and the others of the cult became worried that he would talk to get his sentence reduced. So mm-hmm. they decided to commit a high-profile murder. And copy Bobby Bosalil to make it look like they had the wrong person. Yeah. So this was like an escalation of what Bosalil had done. This last story was what Manson had told James Day for his book, Hippie Cult Leader, The Last Words of Charles Manson. Though Manson has told other stories over the years and has implied other theories over the years, uh-huh. this was like so the last thing that he said, he said before he died. Okay, yeah. So this is the last theory. This is, you know, all these years later, he's like, yeah, yeah, that's what we were doing. Yeah, sure. Another <laughs> theory is that energy was building in the cult. There were 
What Manson thought at least two murders and he believed things were building with the Black Panthers, tempers were flaring at the ranch, and Manson felt that it was time to get revenge for his failed music career. Mm-hmm. The year before when the family had stayed with Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys, he was told Melcher lived at 10050 CeeLo Drive in Benedict Canyon. Mm-hmm. This is where Manson ordered his most t- trusted cult members to go and kill everybody inside the house. Mm-hmm. Because this is where Terry Mulcher had lived the year before. Yes. Some articles say that Manson had kept an eye on the house and knew Melcher no longer lived in the house. However, Manson, even if he did know this house was rented out to the Hollywood elite. Mm-hmm. It represented people that had rejected him. Yeah. Um, this is my personal favorite theory mm-hmm. that either he w- thought he was getting Melcher or that he was at least getting back at people that he felt represented was the in society. That same that, society, yeah. Yeah. The last theory is that Manson sent the, sent the cult to these homes for their famous creepy crawlies. Where they sneak into homes while the owners are asleep and steal valuables. However, Manson was losing control of the cult, and the members decided to kill everyone in the homes. Hmm. Uh, this doesn't make sense to me because I don't think Manson ever lost control of anyone. I think for the most part, everything was thought out by Manson. I don't think Manson cared who was killed, who the victims were, or even if it was his own cult members. I think all people were expendable to him. I don't think he really had a regard for his own life at this point. Mm-hmm. He really didn't care if he went back to jail. He just didn't care. Yeah. It was all about his philosophy and helter-skelter at that point. Yeah. So, let's kind of go through what happened that night. Like, okay. how that went down on, well, those two nights. August 9th. At 10050 CeeLo Drive in Benedict Canyon, 26-year-old actress Sharon Tate was eight months pregnant. Her husband was director Roman Polanski, and he was out of the country, so she was hosting a small dinner party with some of her friends. A teenage boy who was friends of the caretaker was on his way to meet his friend at the guest house at the back of the property. So, there's people there. It wasn't just Sharon there. At the same time, Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkle, and Linda Caspian of the Manson family parked their car at the end of the driveway and entered the property. So, the driveway was kind of this round, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of this winding driveway up to the house. Yeah. You know, because it was kind of a private home. They cut the phone lines to the house and waited. When the teenage boy, Stephen Parents, headlights flashed, it made its way down the driveway and entered the property. Tex stepped out in front of the vehicle and shot the boy as he begged for his life. Yes. Mm-hmm. So now we have a car with the teenage boy. His body slumped over the car. It was late in the night and dinner had been completed. Sharon Tate and the guest had retired for the evening. So, Tex, Susan, and Patricia broke into the house and left Linda at the end of the driveway as the lookout. Okay. So, we have these three main 
people uh-huh. that we've talked about yeah. that go in. And then this one person is at the end of the driveway yeah. watching to make sure nobody else comes down the driveway. Mm-hmm. We have, I cannot say this name, so I'm just going to use the last name, uh, Frakowski, a friend of Polanski's, and the partner of coffee heiress Abigail Folgers, uh, was asleep on the couch in the living room. Tex woke him up with a kick in the head. Tex then announced, I'm the devil. I'm here to do the devil's business. Patricia and Susan dragged Jay Sebring, a Hollywood hairdresser, Sharon Tate, and Abigail Folger into the living room. Sharon and Jay are tied together by a rope around the neck, and a rope was hung over the ceiling beam. Jay protested the rough treatment of Sharon due to her pregnancy, and he was shot by Tex. So, they went business. Yep. So now we have two dead. Abigail was ordered to get her purse that contained $70. All right. Tex got distracted by Jay Sebring's groaning and went back to stab him seven times, killing him. So now we got three dead. Frykowski managed to free his arms that were tied with a towel and lunged at Susan Atkins. She stabbed him in the legs with a butcher knife, but he managed to stumble out the front door where he came face-to-face with Linda Kasabian. Mm-hmm. You know, she was the one yeah. that, that was left at the end of the drive. Yeah. She said in a later interview that he w- had blood all over his face and he looked at her, he looked her in the eye and just fell to the ground in the bushes. Linda had left the gates and had run to the house to stop the killing. She told interviewers that she lied and told them somebody was coming so they would leave. Though she also said that she stood in shock and watched the murders unfold before she was able to get the nerve to tell them someone was coming and get them out of the house. Uh, Well, that's understandable. So, she just stands there and watches in shock. Yeah. She knew what was going on. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like... A surprise. Right. Right. (laughs) She saw them kill the guy in the car. I mean, yeah. really? Yeah. So, Linda Casabian went back to the cars at the end of the driveway and later said that she intended to drive away. Okay. But she sat in the car with it running. And she thought about her, dro- her daughter, who was back at the ranch with Manson. So, she turned off the car and went back down to the house. She later was one of the key witnesses in the trial. So she's just running back and forth and starting the car like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. Inside the house, Sharon Tate pled for her life and the life of her unborn child. She begged to be held as a hostage long enough to give birth to her child. It was unknown who killed her, but she was stabbed 16 times and her baby was cut out of her. Susan Atkins took the towel that was used to bind Frangowski and dipped it in Sharon's blood and wrote pig on the front door of the house. August 9th, Tex Watson, Sharon Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, Leslie Van Houten, and some articles say Manson himself go to Leno and Rosemary LaBianca's house. It is possible that Leno LaBianca owned Manson gambling money, as suggested in some articles, these articles suggest that Manson was still trying to pay back the straight Satan biker gang for the bad drugs that they were given. Oh, okay. So, so he's scrambling. He's scrambling. Yeah. He's owned 
possibly owed this gambling money. And trying to get it. Yeah. Okay. So there were, they had three children that lived in the home, but they were all at a friend's house that night. Both of them were in their second marriages. Linda was 44, Rosemary was 40, and they both died beside each other. Manson had not been happy with the Tate murder scene, and the LaBianca murder scene was much cleaner and neater. It's said that Manson wanted them to write something witchy, so the cult wrote pig and helter, though misspelled skelter in blood. <laughs> Not the most educated people. Right. <laughs> August 16, 1969, Spawn Ranch was raided by 100 officers in the early morning hours, catching everyone off guard. Uh, Manson believed Donald Shea, a former stuntman and small-time actor, who also worked at Spawn Ranch as a horse wrangler, was behind the raid. Manson believed Shay had tipped off police that there were stolen cars on the property and helped them orchestrate the raid so that some of the family members would be arrested. So Manson and Shay had kind of not really gotten along. Mm -hmm. Shay had been on the ranch for a long time before Manson and the cult got there. Yeah. And Shay had always felt like Manson was taking advantage of George Spawn. Okay. But Spawn loved Manson, and he loved the women that was taking care of him, and he really, really enjoyed Manson's company. So this was a good way that... I guess Shay felt he could get rid of Manson. Yes, yeah. You know, by having this raid on yeah. the farm. So Manson didn't like authority and didn't like that Shay tried to control him and the cult. He took it personal offense anytime Shay told someone in the cult what to do. Because mm-hmm. Manson felt like he was the leader. He was the one that had the right to tell them what to do. Yeah, exactly. So, when the ranch was raided, Manson immediately knew Shay was behind it. And 10 days after the raid, Manson, Tex Watson, Bruce Davis, Steve Grogan, Bill Vance, and Larry Bailey grabbed Shay, forced him into a car. He was first attacked in the car with a pipe by Tex and Grogan. He was then driven outside of the ranch, taken from the car, and stabbed to death. His body was hidden and not found until December 1977. My goodness. Yeah. And again, not what they were after, right? Right. (laughs) And this is the last murder that was associated with them. them. Yeah. So several of the family members were arrested for petty crimes like car theft, although a few of them had been arrested and found guilty of George Heinemann's murder. Mm -hmm. Susan Atkins was one of those. Susan was in the Sybil Brand Institute for Women. Uh Um, This is where she told her cellmate about killing Sharon Tate. Oh, okay. So at that time, they hadn't... They um, didn't really even know. Yeah. Yeah. It was unconnected at that point until she started talking. Exactly. Yeah. On December 8th, 1969... Manson, Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, and Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Hooten were all indicted on the murders on Silo Drive and the LaBianca house, and their trial began in June 1970. Linda Caspian was a key witness in exchange for immunity, and during the trial, the women showed no remorse and often giggled during the proceedings. Mm-hmm. 
Manson carved an X into his forehead, and the girls did the same thing. He later changed this into a swat sticker. Yeah. Yeah. The X became not scary enough. Right. (laughs) (laughs) A group of his cult members sat outside the courthouse and shaved their heads in solidarity during the trial. January 25th, 1971, all defendants were found guilty and all received the death penalty. In 1972, California repealed the death penalty, so their sentences were commuted to life in prison. Manson died in prison at the age of 83 on November 2017. So I would have loved to have met Manson and to have talked to him in person. Yeah. It seems that I'm not the only one that's fascinated by him. There's been several movies and books and stuff. Helter Skelter was the first television movie series in 1976. Wow. There was also a book called Helter Skelter, Mm -hmm. which Mom had and I read. (laughs) (laughs) That was the first book that I read about him. Yeah. (laughs) Well, see, I think I was in seventh grade when I read this. (laughs) It was the first true crime book I'd ever read. That's cool. In 2004, it was made into a television movie. In 2008, the movie The Strangers says it was based on a true story and alluded to the fact that it was inspired by the Manson murders. Okay, yeah, I think so I remember that. Yeah. That one, I don't see the Manson murders in, but that was, that was a scary movie. Scary movie, yeah. <laughs> And then in 2019, uh, Quentin Tarantino's film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's kind of a what-if story. And I have not seen it yet. I need to watch it. I haven't seen it yet. It's kind of a what-if story about Manson. Yeah. And stuff. I haven't seen it yet either, but I've heard it's really good. Yeah, I need to. That's that's really cool. So, that's the story about the Manson cult murders. Uh, That's one of my personal favorites. Yes. Honestly. There is a lot in that. There's a lot of it. There's a lot to unpack. <laughs> and there's still so much more that you yeah. can go down. There's still a lot of well, there were people we didn't so talk about. so many people in so many years. And, you know, yes. they did a lot of stuff, for sure. Yes. <laughs> for sure. Awesome. Okay, so we had a little break here, and now are we ready to keep on and dive into our mystery? Let's do it. So, are you ready for a real mystery? A real one. Let's do it. A real real mystery. Well, buckle up, because I am going to take you on a really crazy ride now, Lisa, and everybody else out there that's going (laughs) to listen to this. All right, let's do it. So, this is a murder that happened 24 years ago and is still unsolved. Oh, man. Okay. So let's dive in. Let's do it. So just after 5 a.m. on December 25th, 1996, the Boulder police received a call that a six-year-old girl was missing from her bedroom. Okay. Not knowing what to expect, they're welcomed into the home by the parents at about 5.55 a.m. And the mother explained that she'd found a ransom note when they'd gotten up that morning, and the note promised the safe return of her daughter If they followed the instructions. Okay. Her daughter was not in the bed, so they had called the police, which was against the 
Once the police had read the note and looked in the girl's room and they had kind of looked through the house a little bit and stuff, the family called family and friends to help search for this little girl. Okay. So, this is despite the fact that, you know, the ransom note said not to contact the police or any outside contacts okay. and stuff to just wait on them to contact them. Yeah. So, these people came over, family, friends, a victim's advocate and everything, uh-huh. and they were there. People started helping to clean up the house and, you know, serving food and stuff. Okay. Without forensics taking fingerprints or checking for evidence of an intruder or anyone other than the immediate family really having been in the house the night in question. Oh, my goodness. So, when the designated time for the ransom call had passed, without hearing from the kidnappers, the police told the father and the family friend to go check the house and see if anything looked out of place okay because they had been sitting here for hours waiting on this and rant. nothing happened right yeah. okay so they're just like okay go check and see if you can find anything that looks out of place or looks wrong mm-hmm. and stuff so how many of you are yelling at your speakers right now <laughs> i mean because I mean, really. Yeah. Right? Yeah. A little girl is missing. The police didn't go and really thoroughly check this house. They let people come and go without controlling the scene. Yeah. They have been sitting and waiting for hours on a phone call. They're not out canvassing the neighborhood. And then they just asked the father and a family friend to go check out the house. Yeah. I mean, is this for real, right? Yeah, it's crazy. This sounds like a bad Lifetime movie. Yeah. (laughs) But this is absolutely for real. Yeah. Um, So you must be thinking that this is a horrible injustice done to some poor family from the wrong side of the tracks. But no. And some of you might remember this case. The father is John Ramsey. He was the president of Access Graphics a computer service company and subsidiary of Lockheed Martin. And the mother was former Miss West Virginia, Patricia Patsy Ramsey, were millionaires. And the little girl that was missing was the six-year-old child beauty queen, John Benet Ramsey. Mm-hmm. So some of you might actually remember this yeah. case from 1996. Yeah. So this case was one that... I actually was in Colorado the night that this case happened. I was at some of my husband's family, and it really was kind of wild. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So the home that the police did not thoroughly investigate was a three-story mansion. With John Benet's bedroom being on the second floor. Okay. And this also included a basement area. Oh, yeah. So this is four full floors. It's a big house. Yeah. Huge house. Huge house. Huge house. Like 7,000 square feet. Yeah. That's insane. Of space that they did not thoroughly investigate. They kind of glanced through the rooms, but they didn't go through all the rooms. And how do we know this? We will find out later. Okay. But 
the ransom note was found in the house and they did not go through and look for evidence. They didn't look for fingerprints. They didn't check for things. They didn't cordon off the house. They didn't do these things. Yeah. And so the mother and the mother reported this to the police. Uh, you know, the mother reported this in the 911 call. She reported the ransom note. Yeah. She told them that she'd found the ransom note on the stairs. Okay. So all of this stuff happened. So before we really get any further into this really bizarre case, I want to do a walkthrough using the blueprints of a house that I found online. Okay. Because this is a really massive house with multiple rooms, staircases, windows, entrance entrances, nooks, crannies, the evidence, people, and bodies can be hidden everywhere. Okay. All I right. mean, this is a huge maze of a house. Okay. So we're going to start at the top of the house. Okay. We have this massive third floor, which is all John and Patsy's bedroom. Oh, my goodness. Yes. That's cool. <laughs> so they have this massive bedroom, their master bedroom, and they have their area that is their bedroom and has a fireplace, and they have one staircase that goes down the first staircase. We're going to label it staircase number one, the front staircase. That goes okay. down into, um, down to the second floor, um, and by the older, their older son Burke's bedroom, and then down in the area of the house by the front door. Okay. And then they have a, like, dressing area. They have two separate dressing areas and two bathrooms. All right. And coming off of this, there's like a little hall going from the master bedroom area into these dressing rooms and bathrooms. And from that, there's a second staircase, a spiral staircase, and we'll label that the back staircase. Okay. And this one goes down to the second floor by Jean Benet's bedroom and then on down into the main floor and goes to the back by the butler's pantry area. Oh, okay. Okay. So, then the second floor has the children's bedrooms. This floor actually has four bedrooms. It has three bathrooms. Okay. It has the two children's bedrooms. One side has Burke's bedroom. And then it has a Another bedroom that is for John's older son, who is actually grown, but okay. just in case he ever comes and wants to stay, stay. with them. Oh, that's cool. Um, okay. And then it has a bathroom. Yeah. A playroom. And then it has John Benet's bedroom and her bathroom and another room that is for John's older daughter, who is also grown. But it's there for her if she wants to come and stay. Okay. And then the two staircases obviously come down on either side of this floor. Uh-huh. And there's also balconies coming off of this floor. Okay. The third floor also has a balcony area. The second floor has a balcony okay. area. And then you go down to the first floor. And the first floor is just a huge maze. So we will start at the very front of the first floor because okay. it is a real maze okay so starting at the first floor you go from the front door you go in and there's an entryway 
And then there's that front staircase that goes uh-huh. from the master bedroom. Yeah. Straight down by Burke's bedroom. Uh-huh. And then comes down into that front entry area. Okay. This staircase also goes down into the basement. Oh, okay. And that's right there in the hall area as you come in. Okay. You can turn to the left and you can go into where the living room and then there's a sunroom and it moves on into a dining room area uh-huh. and stuff. If you go straight through the hall, you go into the kitchen and then there's a big kitchen area. You can turn to the left off the kitchen area and then there's a breakfast room and this kind of takes you into a circle. Okay. Um, yeah. Because the dining room will also take you into that breakfast area mm-hmm. and okay. then into the kitchen So, you can go into a full circle through there. Okay. Um, You can go straight through the kitchen, and you can go into another hallway. And then off of this hallway, you have John's study. Okay. It's kind of to your left. You have a mudroom that goes into the garage. So, that's your entryway from the garage. Okay. And then you have, to your right, you have your, the spiral staircase. Okay. That goes up into the second floor, floor. Yeah. by John Benet's bedroom, and then on up into the third floor where okay. the hall is to the dressing rooms mm-hmm. and, okay. you know, yeah. John and Patsy's room. And then you have the butler's pantry area. Okay. And the kitchen and everything. So, that's that level. Okay. Then you have the basement. Okay. So the basement area adds another level of complication. Okay. The stairs leading to that is at the front of the house. So it's right by the front door. All right. Um, you go down the stairs, and at the bottom of the stairs is this open area, kind of an open room area. And if you go straight from the stairs, you go into a boiler room. Okay. Which is a room. You go into the doorway. There's a boiler room. And then through that is another room that is the wine cellar. Oh, okay. These rooms are both the only entrance and exit through these rooms is through those doors. So, if you turn right, you will go down this hall. And this will take you into the laundry room, which is kind of open. And then there is closets and a storage area now in the storage area in this back area there are windows back there yeah just to the right of the boiler room so when you come down the stairs there's the door to the boiler room straight in front of you and just to the right of that is another door and this will take you into the hobby room okay you go into the hobby room and there is another storage area To the right of that, there's windows in this area. And then there are two crawl spaces in here as well. So this is only a partially finished basement. Okay. There's air, those crawl spaces aren't completely finished. Okay. There's windows in both of the storage areas, the laundry room, and I guess, so there are those windows Windows in there. there. Okay. So now that we have the layout of this 7,000 square foot house and an idea of the absurdity of the fact that the only room that was actually blocked off in this house was the bedroom. 
Was John Bonet's bedroom. <laughs> and that they didn't really look through this whole house and this whole maze. Yeah. That's you know, and they let people come and go throughout the day. Let's kind of look at this timeline. Okay. But when I was doing this research, at first I just put together this timeline of the time when I was only looking at when the call was made. Yeah. But then as I actually got into the story and really started looking at it, I really looked at the importance of what went on around this. Yeah. And so I started a few weeks before this happened. Now, I will say that at one point I had gone down a rabbit hole and I had this years back. Yeah. But then I did narrow it down. Okay. And at some point... I may put up some more things because there is a lot of stuff. Yeah. A lot of things that I think really should be looked at. But let's start November 20th, 1996. Okay. So Patsy celebrated her 40th birthday. Okay. And there was a large party in the house. All right. So there were people in and out of the house at this point. Yeah. So she had a lot of people in the house at that point. Okay. December 6th, 1996, John Monet had her own Little Miss Colorado float. Oh. In the lights of December parade. And her older brother, Burke, actually had a float in this parade as well. Okay. So she had been in nine pageants, nine beauty pageants. Wow had won a lot of those. She had actually come in second in a national pageant in Atlanta, Georgia oh, cool. the year before. Yeah. She she did all kinds of things. She was performing in the mall. She which um that comes up like in December twenty second. You know, she was really out there and did a lot of things. Okay. Um, yeah. This family was very well-known in okay. the area. All right. <laughs> reputation, huh? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and I do want to say that Patsy also had a reputation of being a pageant mom. Yes. I had heard a lot of that about her. Yes. But she had also been in all these pageants and stuff. And remember, she was Miss West Virginia. Yeah. She had um, done the circuit. Well. And, yeah. So... <laughs> December 21st, 1996, John Ramsey's company, Access Graphics, announced their billion-dollar profit for that year. Wow. This was not just some little announcement. This was announced in newspapers and magazines, not only in the Boulder area, but this was announced like in... The Forbes magazine, this was... An, <laughs> they went an, all out with yeah, it. Yeah, this was like an internationally yeah. known thing. It was like around this time in this, like, I want to say 96, 97, something like that, when Lockheed Martin actually had bought the company. So they were like, they were big news. Yeah. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. John actually got a $118,000 Christmas bonus that wow. year. <laughs> this was not announced. This was not something that was Public. well known. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but he kept a ledger in his office with all of his financial records. 
And this was in the office that was in the house. Okay. In that back room, in that back office. Yes. By on the, the main floor. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, remember, they had just had that big party 40th and... birthday party. Yeah. And stuff. This is a not open house, but it... It does kind of have a maze, and it would be easy to have access to that room. Yes. So, they had a big luncheon to celebrate this at that main branch in Boulder. December 22nd, 1996, John Bonet performs at a local mall where she sings and dances for shoppers. She does this regularly. A lot of the pageants that they do is at this mall. So, she does a lot of stuff there at that local mall. mall. So, it is very... Public, so that a lot of people has access to see her in her pageant gowns and, and all dressed up. Okay. Uh, December 23rd, 1996, the Ramseys throw a Christmas party with about 30 guests. Bill McReynolds, one of their family friends, plays Santa Claus. And John Monet is just taken with him okay. as Santa. She doesn't realize who it is. She doesn't know that this is this guy that she kind of knows. I mean, she's not real familiar with him. But she really um, spends a lot of time around Santa. Okay. Bill McReynolds starts calling her his special friend. In fact, that kind of stays. He had always kind of had this special relationship with her since they had moved to Boulder in 94. He had been kind of taken with the little girl. So playing Santa Claus, you know, he got extra close with her. Yeah. Um, She followed him around. He had her doing little things with him because, you know, she was Santa's little helper. Yeah. And everything. So that was something to know. Yeah. Now, a couple things come out later, but this is really important to know that he played Santa at this party. Okay. About 6.47 that evening, someone in the home calls 911, and police dispatcher... Teresa Hillary answers the call, but they hang up. Okay. Nobody says anything. It just hangs up. She calls back and gets an answering machine. Okay. Of course, you know, they're having a party. They're not hearing the phone ring and stuff. And so police are dispatched to the home. When police get there, one of the party guests answers the door Uh and basically tells police nothing's going on in the home. This is at 7.09. Nothing's going on in the home. The report that this call was made accidentally, that there's there's nothing wrong. Yeah, yeah. Being an influential neighborhood, police don't even make a report of it. This uh, yeah. is kind of just written off until after this, this murder. Happens. Okay. But this is just a few days before the murder. Yes, okay. So, yeah. Um, so Kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many people have these random accidental calls to 911 from their house? Not many. Yeah. (laughs) And during a Christmas party? Yeah. I mean, that's just kind of odd. So, December 24th, 1996, John Bonet goes to a friend's house. So, this is the day before Christmas. This is Christmas Eve. She goes to the Castanics 
house. She is friends with their little girl, Megan. Okay. And so she's playing with Megan, and she has this conversation with Megan. So they're talking about Santa. I mean, they're six years old. Yeah. They're talking about Santa, and she tells Megan that she's going to have a secret visit from Santa after Christmas. Oh, And Megan is saying, no, Santa's coming tonight. And she says, no, Santa's going to come and see me after Christmas, but it's a secret. You can't tell anybody. Hmm, that's weird. Right. So, this comes out after the murder when Megan's mom is asking, did Jean Benet say anything? Was there anything odd? Was there anything... And Megan tells her mom about this. Yeah. And stuff. And so they call and they report this to the police. Okay. About this secret visit, visit from Santa. Okay, yeah. Weird, weird thing was right. said. Yeah. So December 25th, 1996. So this is Christmas morning. The family gets up about 6 and open presents. Um, it's just John and Patsy and John Benet and Burke. Okay. Um, John leaves around noon to go check the family's private plane and set everything up for their trip to Michigan the next day. Okay. So they always get up the day after Christmas. They go to Michigan to see John's older children. He had been married before. He had three children in his previous marriage, but one of them had died in a car accident. So he has these two grown children that live in Michigan And they fly to Michigan the day after Christmas every year and have Christmas. With them. With them. Okay. Yeah. So, he goes and makes sure the plane is packed and everything's ready and talks to the pilot and everything. So, they're going to have this second Christmas with them. And he returns about 3 o'clock that afternoon. And at 5 o'clock, they leave for a Christmas party at Fleet and Priscilla White's house. Okay. Between that 3 and 5 o'clock, um, John Bonet got a bicycle for Christmas. Okay, And yeah. John recalls, I saw a couple documentaries where he recalls um, taking John Bonet out to ride this bike. And one of his memories was her asking him, just one more time, Daddy, just one more time. But they had yeah. to get ready for this Christmas party. And he told her later. Yeah. And, of course, there wasn't a, a later. later. Yeah. You know, they they played with the toys, and he took her riding yeah. the bike. And then at 5, they left for this uh, Christmas party. And on the way home, John Bonet and Burke fell asleep in the car. They went and dropped some gifts off for some other family friends, and they arrived home about 9 o'clock, where they said they put the kids to bed. And John and Patsy said they went to bed between 10 and 10.30 that evening. Patsy actually said she went to bed right around 10 o'clock, and John was in bed by 10.30. John said he took a melatonin that night so that he could sleep. Now, remember, they are on the third floor. Okay. Now, one thing that was mentioned in some documentaries about this house was... This house was older. It was a very old house. They didn't have an alarm on this house. They felt like this was a very safe Safe neighborhood. neighborhood. Yeah. On December 26th, 1996, 5.30 in the morning, John and Patsy get up. 
and they are getting everything prepared for their trip. The way that they do this is generally they get up, they get everything done. Now, of course, the plane is packed. They don't have to pack anything. They get up, they get ready, you know, shower, yeah. dress, have a cup of coffee, and then they just get the kids up, up out of go. bed yeah. and they go. And they get on the plane. And then the kids can eat on the plane and everything. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, they get up and the kids are still in, asleep. Patsy gets dressed and is going down that back spiral staircase. Mm-hmm. This is the staircase that she says she uses every day. This okay. is her daily routine. routine. She is usually the first one up every morning. She uses that back staircase. And this is... Because this is the one that's closest to her dressing room. Okay. And it goes past John Bonet's room. She goes down to fix coffee for she and John. And John is shaving in his bathroom. Okay. And she goes down and she finds this note. And in one interview I saw, she said, you know, she's just walking down. It's very dimly lit from just a few lights that they leave on downstairs. Yeah. And she just sees this paper sitting on the tread of a stair. Yeah. And she bends down and picks it up, and it's addressed to John. And she just remembers starting to read this and just screaming. And she just screams as she reads it. And then she runs to the second floor, and John Bonet isn't in her bed. Okay. Well, John hears her screaming and running on the stairs. So he meets her on the second floor, hands him the note, and she runs to Burke's room because she's going to go check on Burke. Uh-huh. Of course, the note doesn't mention anything about him. But also, John Benet sometimes goes into Burke's room and sleeps with him. Okay. So she goes in there and she's looking for John Benet and she's not in there. And so John tells her to call the police, and he starts running through the second floor, looking in all the rooms and everything, and that's when Patsy calls 911. Yes. Okay. If you listen to the 911 call or you look at a transcript, it's really broken up. You can hear the panic in her voice. Yeah. It's really, you can tell that she's scared. Yeah. So... The police arrive at about 5.55. So, remember, they got up at 5.30. Yes. They're calling the police at 5.55 that morning. Okay. They come in, take statements from the parents. They look at John Bonet's room, which basically just has toys scattered all over the room. Yeah. Her bed looks like it's been slept in. Yeah. But there is no signs of a struggle. There is nothing there that looks like she was forced out of her room. Okay. There's nothing that looks amiss upstairs. So, they kind of glance around the rest of the house to see, okay, is she hiding somewhere? They take statements. And they block off her room with crime scene tape. Uh Uh-huh. And they call victim's advocate because at this point, this is a missing person's case. Yes. So, they block off her room, and they allow the family to call family and friends to come in and help search for the little girl and to be there as support for the family. Okay. So, the note, which I'll read the note in just a few minutes, but the note gives times that they're going to call. Okay. And during this this morning time, while they're waiting this out, and they are 
these pe- there are people that are coming in. They're bringing in food. They're cleaning dishes. Oh, so they're, they're yeah, yeah. horrible with it. They're trampling through things. They're Man. walking up and down stairs, going into rooms Man. and stuff. Um, about one o'clock that afternoon, the kidnappers still hadn't called. The deadline's come and gone. So the police tell John and they say, go look around and see if you see anything that is amiss. Okay. So in an interview that I listened to, John says that he distinctly remembers them saying, start in the basement and move up looking for anything that you find that might be wrong okay you know anything that looks wrong anything that looks out of place anything missing yeah you know but start at the bottom and move up yeah um and that's why they go straight to the basement because this has been something that has been questioned Uh and stuff but john and fleet white head straight to the basement to begin their search. And a few short minutes later, John comes back to the basement, back from the basement carrying the body of his daughter. Man. Now, you remember I said, we know that they did not search all of the rooms in the house. Yeah. She had been in the wine cellar the whole time. The whole time. This whole time. Man. She had been in that wine cellar, which was a room that was hardly ever used. Yeah. But you go down in the basement... You go through the boiler room and into the wine cellar. Yeah. He goes down to the basement. They're supposed to be checking. He says he goes in and he thinks, okay, I'm supposed to be looking everywhere. He flicks on the light. There's his daughter's body. Yeah. What John said was he walks in and he sees his daughter covered with a blanket. She has tape over her mouth. And he runs over there, and he rips the tape off. Oh. He starts trying to untie her hands, but he can't get the knot off. He takes the blanket off of her. Oh, my goodness. He picks her up, and that's when he realizes she's really cold. Yeah. And he knows that she's gone. He carries her upstairs. He lays her down beside a Christmas tree. Uh, and grabs a throw blanket off a couch and covers her up. So well, now we're like destroying not at all, all yeah. of this evidence. Yeah, big time. <laughs> on the body. Big time. So John Monet had died by asphyxiation. She was strangled with a piece of cord wrapped around her neck. Had also been wrapped around a broken handle of a paintbrush. Okay. And wrapped around her neck and just yeah. wrapped really tightly. She had been hit in the head hard enough to to fracture her skull. Man. There was tape covering her mouth. Her wrists were bound by the same cord that was wrapped around her neck. She had been sexually assaulted, although she had also been wiped clean and no semen was found. They don't think she had actually been raped. Yeah. But she had been sexually assaulted. There was a drop of blood on the outside of her underwear and saliva found on the inside of her underwear. Okay. One documentary I saw, the police said they thought that the saliva was from the Korean worker or the Chinese worker that made the underwear. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, apparently, these 
Chinese people who make little girls' underwear lick them before they put them in the package. And oh. we don't, you know, wash the underwear when they come oh. out and we're putting them straight on our little kids. Gross. With, with you know, saliva yeah. on them. That's gross. Makes sense? Yeah, that's gross. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's gross. <laughs> so, yeah. Ew. I never heard that before, but I had that either. Was, that's really that nasty. was their yeah. that was their theory. That's their explanation. Um, there was a boot print found next to her body. There were some reports saying that this boot print was from boots that were not found in the home. There were okay. some reports that said that the family had boots that matched that, or had had boots that matched that. Yeah. But most reports said that there, these boots were not found in the home. And she was covered with a white blanket that had come out of the dryer. Okay. So let's look at this investigation. Because we know at this point, everything is screwed up. Yes. I can't even imagine what the police were thinking when he comes walking up the stairs with the body of yeah. his daughter... And all this time, they've been just sitting there, and her body had been downstairs yeah, the whole time. the whole time. He did the crappiest job possible in this millionaire's home. Yeah. <laughs> it was not good. It was very, very, very botched. So, numerous people have been coming and going. Wow. They Could never have slipped out at some point. Yeah. Could have been, you know, one of the people that was in the house that was coming and going, you know? Yeah. Because nobody knew. So when John Ramsey found his daughter, I mean, he completely contaminated everything. Yeah. By uncovering her, taking the tape off her mouth, carrying her up the stairs. Yeah. All of those things. Yep. He just, he messed things up, but everything had already been messed up. Yeah, from the beginning. And stuff. So, the only evidence that they really had that had not been contaminated to the point that was unusable really was this ransom note. Was this two and a half page ransom note. Oh my goodness. Yeah. (laughs) So, this ransom note that they found on... Their staircase read, Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed. If you want to see her in 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account, $100,000 in $100 bills, and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an attache, an adequate size attache, sorry, an (laughs) adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an early or delivery of the money and hence an earlier pickup of your daughter. 
any deviation of my instructions will result in an immediate an immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be delivered her remains for proper proper burial. The two gentlemen watching your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you do not provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny as well as authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that southern common sense of yours. It is up to you now, John. Victory! Explanation point. S period, B period, T period, C period. Hmm. Now that is uh, one that's a letter. crazy rancid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. So, let me just point out that they read this ransom note, and the very first thing they did was call the police. Yes. Didn't really So, strike ball. one. Yeah. <laughs> so, these people, if they were still in the house, yeah. they heard them calling the police and executed yeah. their daughter immediately. And they did make good that her remains were left in the house. Yeah. But they asked for $118,000. Yes. Which is the exact amount that John got for his Christmas bonus. Yeah, that's weird. Which comes back to haunt them in a bit. (laughs) (laughs) The cord and broken paintbrush handle that was wrapped around John Benet's neck, that was also evidence. The same cord that was wrapped around her neck was also wrapped around her hands. It's a piece of duct tape that was over her mouth. Saliva was found in her underwear. A drop of blood was found on the outside of her underwear. Tissue was found under her nails. Now, the saliva, drop of blood, and tissue all had the same DNA. Okay. A boot print was found beside her body. There was a broken window in the basement, and there was pineapple in her stomach. It was also noted that there had been a bowl of pineapple on the kitchen cabinet when the police had arrived. At oh, yeah. some point during the morning with all the people in and out, that pineapple had been dumped and that bowl had been cleaned. Oh. But they did, at some point, somebody did look for fingerprints, apparently, and only Patricia and Burke's fingerprints were found okay. on the bowl. Okay. But... um. You know, yeah, it's not like they had done it properly, right? Right, (laughs) 
So from the beginning, the main focus of the investigation was on the parents. Mm-hmm. But anytime a murder happens, it's probably somebody that's close to yeah. that person. And the evidence was so limited and tampered with. Yes. They just didn't have anything to go on. Yeah. The effort, the investigation was passed between the DA and the police, and nobody was ever able to figure out who had actually killed John Bonet. And people outside of the family, there just has never been enough proof to actually find somebody. My goodness. In fact, it's the lack of evidence that has really been the problem and not a lack of theories because there have been a ton of theories but with dna you know they did have dna and dna has ruled out a lot of people yes yeah dna has ruled out everybody that has been a suspect so yeah so (laughs) the theories that they have here yes let's look at this so the first theory was looking at patricia or patsy the mom so there is a long-standing theory that Patsy had killed John Bonet. John Bonet was a chronic bedwetter, mm-hmm. and so the theory was that she had had a bedwetting incident in the okay. middle of the night. Yeah, and Patsy was just so upset that she had had another bedwetting incident. Yeah, <laughs> and that she'd had to get up again and. Probably, you know, they're getting up so early and, you know, they'd had this party and, you know, there might have been some alcohol use. Exactly. You know, and so she was just frustrated and angry. And so Patsy hit John Bonet in the bathroom and this time she hit her a little too hard. She falls and hits her head, possibly on the bathtub. And out of fear of -hmm. what had happened, they stage her death. In the basement, wrote yeah. the ransom note, and waited until morning to call the police. Okay. So, of course, you have to have a motive for this. Yeah. So, looking at some motives, frustration over that, that just doesn't really make sense. Yeah, exactly. Especially when you think about all the things that could have been done. I mean, they could have called the police, um, called 911 and said that she slipped and fell. Yeah. They could have been. put her at the bottom of the stairs and said she fell down the stairs. Yeah. You know, there's just too many things that could have been done. But there could have been some jealousy. In an interview, John said of his daughter that she was very proud that she was named after me because my name is John Bennett Ramsey. She just has this effervescent personality like Patsy. I mean, just, ta-da, here I am, you know? Yeah. So, John Bonet just had this way of commanding the attention of everybody in the room. Yeah. And she apparently was so much like her mom. And, you know, when daughters are a lot like their mothers, yeah, they butt heads yeah, a lot. a lot, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, there could have been some of that. Yeah. I want to point out that bedwetting for a six-year-old girl isn't really normal. No. Really. Not developmentally, unless there's a medical issue. Yeah. And I tell you, I have 12 pages of notes here. I read tons of stuff. I watched... 
probably five or six documentaries. I'm talking hours of yeah. documentaries. Never did I find anything that mentioned a medical issue or any medication that she was taking for a medical issue yeah. for this problem. Mm-hmm, exactly, yeah. So that kind of leads me to other issues <laughs> that cause bedwetting. As a therapist, the biggest thing that I see when chronic bedwetting is an issue is usually sexual abuse. Yeah. So that could be another side of this jealousy angle is if John was sexually abusing John Bonet, Patsy could have been jealous of her daughter getting this attention. And I know that sounds really sick. That no, but yeah, that happens though. You you hear about does. that happening all the time. Yeah. It does. And I mean, you have this very wealthy family. This man that has a lot of wealth and a lot of power and this woman who is a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. So, when you have this power differential, she doesn't have her own money. No. And if she comes at him with these accusations, he could get good lawyers. Yeah. He could make her sound crazy. Yep, and it's happened before. Yes. So, that could be, there could be some... Some emotional abuse. Uh-huh. There could even be some physical abuse there toward Patsy that could be causing some of this. Yeah. Now, I'm not putting... No, just so you know, I'm not putting that out there, and I'm not saying that that's what happened. No. I'm just saying that when you look at that theory... It's a possibility That, that could it. be that yeah. angle. You also have to look at... She is dressing her daughter up. In these fancy and some say provocative clothing, lots of makeup, parading her around for trophies. Yeah. There's just a lot Bringing a lot of attention to her. Yeah. Yeah. A lot. A lot of evidence goes against this, though. Yeah. So the main evidence against Patsy is actually the ransom note. Mm Mm-hmm. It was written on her notepad. This notepad was actually kept at the bottom of the spiral staircase, staircase. outside of the kitchen, at the bottom of the staircase that Patsy always used. Okay, so very much her stuff. Right. Okay. There appeared to be the start of a practice note on this notepad that they found. There were some reports that stated that a practice note was found in the trash. Okay. Okay. One handwriting expert reported a 4.5 out of 5 match for Patsy. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's pretty big. Yeah. For those kind of things. But I want to point out that handwriting experts, it's very subjective. And it's not not always admissible. Yeah, that's <laughs> Because true. you can get three different handwriting experts and they can all say different things. The amount of money asked for in the ransom note was the exact amount that John received as a Christmas bonus, which wasn't yeah, publicized. Yeah. The note was left on the stairs that she went down every morning in a place that she was sure to find. So how would a stranger know that she used the staircase every morning? Yeah, that's um, weird. Wouldn't a stranger have left it uh, in a more visible place, like on John Bonet's bed? Yeah. Where the, you think they would find it 
Right. Quickly. Yeah. The groat that was used to strangle John Bonet was made out of a broken handle of Patsy's paintbrush. Okay. Yeah. Patsy and John hired lawyers almost immediately. Yeah, I knew about that real fast. They made plans to leave town very soon after finding John Bonet's body. I mean, oh. like within hours. Oh, uh, police heard them talking and making these plans. They were not very cooperative with police. They weren't, they didn't feel like police were on their side, so they weren't giving interviews. Forthcoming with them, yeah. yeah. So instead of giving police interviews, they talked to CNN oh, instead yeah. and talked to other reporters. Patsy was often on medication and appeared to be out of it when she was being interviewed. Yeah. There was very little evidence of anyone outside of the family being in the home. Only one footprint found inside beside her body. No other footprints were found inside. There wasn't any other fingerprints. There wasn't anything really found outside. Uh There was just so little evidence found. Yeah. Man. So, arguments against Patsy being the killer. Okay. There was no signs of physical abuse in the past. Yeah. There had never been allegations of this. And everyone who knew about John Benet's problems stated that Patsy was very patient and kind with her. Mm-hmm. She had absolutely no problem getting up with her and helping clean up. Okay. They had actually bought a washer dryer like a small washer dryer uh-huh. and put it upstairs just, next to John Benet's room. Yeah, just because of yeah. the issue. Yeah. So that they could could Clean. wash her stuff so that the housekeeper didn't have to take care of it. Well, that was nice. So yeah. that she was used to getting up in the middle of the night and washing her bedding and bathing her and everything. Yeah. And there had never been an issue. Okay. Handwriting analysis is subjective, like I said. Yeah. And there were similarities. It's really difficult, though, to use that as evidence. Yes. The notepad was sitting out and available, so it could have been convenient. Yeah, that's true. The practice could have been the killer forgetting the note. Like, could have been forgetting what they were what supposed to, to say write. or, yeah. Maybe this person forgot the note that they were supposed to bring. Oh, And was yeah. trying to write a new one as a replacement for that. Maybe it was dropped. Or another bumble was when they were halfway down the stairs. Maybe they realized, I forgot to put the note upstairs. And uh-huh. instead of going back upstairs out of fear of waking somebody up, one. they just yeah. dropped it. If the killer was trying to kidnap the little girl, but things went wrong, and they ended up killing her in the basement, it makes sense that they would use what was available. Yes. So if they had brought cord to like tie her up, uh-huh. And stuff, then using the cord that they brought to tie her up to strangle her and finding a paintbrush. Yeah. You know, that that makes sense. That and the hobby room was right there. Right there beside it. It was right. easy access, just like the notepad was. Yeah. Exactly. Possibly, you know, if they weren't strong enough to just use the cord, they got the paintbrush. Had to, had to, and yeah. it's not easy to strangle somebody. That, yeah, that's yeah. true. And this created that there were really deep grooves in her neck, uh-huh. reports said. I have a hard time thinking that a mother 
could do something. Could do that. Especially yeah. one that's staging the death. Yeah. After accidentally hitting her. Yeah. You know. That's true. Would make such It wouldn't grooves. be overkill. Yeah. It right. wouldn't be such overkill. That, that takes the such case. a lot of work. That, yeah. It's a lot of effort. Yeah. yeah. Um, John Bonet was also sexually assaulted. Yeah. But not actually raped. So why would Patsy accidentally kill her daughter and by, then do something and like then that? Yeah. Sexually assault her. Yeah. That doesn't really fit into that accident scenario. And then the DNA that was found on her didn't match Patsy. Yeah. So despite this, there still continues to be allegations, articles, books written implicating her. Yes. Patsy died on June 24, 2006 of ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. The DA actually cleared the Ramseys on July 9th, 2008, two years after Patsy's death. She formally apologized and stated that the family could not remain under suspicion, but Patsy had already died and never lived to hear that. Man. So then we have John Ramsey. We have Dad. Okay. Okay. John Ramsey. Okay. Theories for John go from helping Patsy, like we talked about, to sexually abusing her for some... And for some reason, killing her in such a horrendous way. Yeah. To wild accusations of a sexual abuse and torture ring of young girls that he and his friends were involved in and that John Bonet was brought into. Wow. Including prostitution and human trafficking of young kids. Wow. Yeah. So, arguments for this theory include. Police officers at the home on the day of the reported kidnapping say that he let the call time come and go without saying anything. There wasn't any nervous questioning, concern, or anger. Yeah. That the time was, you know, ticking away and they weren't hearing anything. Yeah. He just let it go. He didn't say a whole lot. When they asked him to look for anything that was amiss, he went straight to the basement and found the body. It seemed too coincidental. I mean, it was like within minutes he went and found the body. Yeah. John was told not to touch anything he found, but he picked up the body and removed the blanket. Did a lot of stuff. Yeah. He removed tape. You know, he just really fucked up the entire yeah. crime scene. I yeah. mean, yeah. it was like any evidence that could have been, been on, maybe on purpose. Yeah. You know. I mean, you know, yeah. Because it, that's a little deliberate, yeah. Then suddenly it's like any DNA that comes back that's his, it's well, I I, I was all over her. it. I, yeah. I, well, I was yeah, all I've been over, over her. Yeah, I kissed her. Yeah, of course I cried over her body. I you know, yeah, of course, yeah, I'm her dad, so, I, of course, yeah. Right. So, he contaminated all of this evidence. They even had people in and out of the house all day long trampling on everything. Yeah. So, anything that was found was just inadmissible. He was heard making flight plans for the family to Georgia shortly after John Bonet's body was found. Yeah. Like within an hour or so. I mean, That's they so were crazy. ready to go. Yeah. So, arguments against this theory. John states that he is a man that does not show emotion. Okay. Especially in public. Yeah. He holds himself a together. Man. Yeah. yeah. 
He only cries in, in private. Yeah. He's very stoic. He said that when his daughter Elizabeth died, the older daughter who uh-huh. died in the car accident, he didn't cry when he heard. He didn't cry in public. He waited yeah. until he got home. He went upstairs and he cried. He didn't even cry around Patsy. Yeah. You know, he just really held it together. He claims when he and Fleet White were told to check the house, they decided to start at the basement. Um, In some interviews, he said that he was told to start in the basement. Yeah. So, if you remember the floor plan, you know, when you enter the basement, like I had mentioned before, you... You go straight to the boiler room and then to the wine cellar. Yeah. So, it's right there. Yeah. I mean, it just, it makes Very sense. Very convenient, yeah. And this is where John Binet was found. So, if you went down to the basement and you decided to start in the basement, you have two choices. Either you go to the back and you make your way to the front, or you start at the front and make your way to the yeah. back. And so, it made sense. Yes, it does. And this wasn't checked earlier so if this is an unused dark part of the basement that wasn't checked earlier and he was like okay let's go check this now i want you to put yourself in his shoes yeah you know you woke up that morning and your little girl's missing yeah and you just found her body you're an emotional wreck exactly it's been a long tense day and she's dead yeah I mean, what do you do? I mean, you probably do exactly what he did, right? I yeah. Mean, I mean, you see your little girl laying there. After all of that, you run to her. Yeah. You're going to rip that tape off. You're going to grab that we'll blanket. You you're going to be yeah. checking for a pulse. Yeah. Yep, you're going to do whatever you can. And are you going to stand there and wait on somebody to come downstairs? Or are you going to grab her body? I mean, you're going to yeah. be prying that dead body out of my arms. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. I forget the evidence. I'm yeah. not. That's my baby girl. Exactly. Yeah. So, I, I do understand that. Then you have Burke Ramsey. So, John Benet's brother was nine years old at the time. Uh-huh. He actually had a past of harming his sister. Yes. In 1994, when he was seven years old, John Benet was four at the time, he hit her with a golf club in the face hard enough to leave a scar. Ooh. Uh, in October of that year, he... Having problems there, babe? <laughs> Um, in October of 1994, she had the scar removed by a plastic surgeon. But siblings fight. Yeah. I mean, my yeah. youngest, Rissa, has that scar on yeah. her face from fighting with Caleb yeah. over a card. It's true. Yeah. He scratched her with a fingernail when she was two. Yeah. I mean, it happens. Yep. And it happens quickly. It does. Because he hit her with a golf club. I mean... That's not really proof of past abuse, in my opinion. And saying that it left a scar, the way that they made it sound, he hit her with a golf club and left a scar, it sounds like this big, bloody incident. But But the girl was performing in pageants and stuff is the reason they got it removed. It was totally cosmetic. It was not something horrible. Exactly. And it could have been just a little scar. I mean, Riss's scar... Was a scratch from a fingernail that just, you know. exactly It wasn't any big deal. It just left a scar. Yeah. There really isn't 
evidence here. This is just a theory. Yeah. There was pineapple in her digestive system, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of debate over when she ate it. Yes. There was a bowl of pineapple found on the counter, and Burke and Patsy's fingerprints were on it. Some theories state that Burke lured, lured her downstairs and gave her a piece of pineapple. Yeah. And then sexually assaulted her and killed her. Mm-hmm. There's... Some that say that he was very jealous of his sister. Yes, I had heard that too, yeah. Yeah. But then others say that he was treated just the same as her. Yeah. Other theories say that they got into a fight over the pineapple, that he went downstairs in the middle of the night and pulled the pineapple out for a snack, and she took his pineapple. And so they got into a fight, and he pushed her, and she fell and hit her head. And John and Patsy covered up the accident and staged the kidnapping and the murder and everything. And this is why they were very protective of him and didn't let him talk. Burke denies this. DNA's cleared him. Yes. He continues to deny this. He denies ever fighting over his sister. And as for the pineapple, he says that there's a chance that they had pineapple that day. Both John and Patsy say they can't remember giving them pineapple, but pineapple was a common snack. It was one of the kids' favorites. Yeah. So there's a chance that they had pineapple that afternoon before they went to the party. Yeah. They could have had pineapple at the party. Nobody knows. Yeah. Then you have this intruder theory. So, you know... They had a lot of people in and out of the house. Oh, yeah. Tons. Way more than they should have. The majority of evidence actually points to this intruder theory. The DNA evidence includes saliva and a drop of blood, the skin under John Bonet's fingernails. Yeah. This does not match anybody in the family. This male DNA. There was a shoe print next to the body that most reports say didn't match any of the shoes that the family owned. It was later discovered that, and this was something that one of the, and this was like years later. Yeah. A, one of the forensic, um, oh my goodness. One of the investigators, a forensic Uh investigator that was hired to go back in and look through evidence and stuff, had pointed out these things that had been buried, this evidence that had been buried in all this other stuff. Yeah. There was a heavy flashlight that was found in the kitchen area that did not belong to the Ramseys. And a suitcase was sitting in the basement by the broken window, and the suitcase didn't belong to them either. Huh. And this was noted, yeah. but it had just been, like, stuck in with all this other stuff. Yes, it was just a, something that got tossed So, around. one of the big things that had been used against John and had said that, you know, he was staging this, like, weeks, maybe a month or so before all of this. John had locked himself out of the house, and he and Burke had arrived at the house John had Burke wait at the front door, and he went around to the basement and broke a basement window. Oh. And went through the basement and then up to the front door and unlocked the house. Okay. They never had that window fixed. Oh. So, we have a millionaire. 
Yeah. Who broke a window, <laughs> crawled <laughs> through the window, and never had the window fixed. Didn't call and get it replaced. <laughs> leaving an open entry point into the house. My goodness. So, this this left their house open to any intruder, anybody who had come into the home at any of these parties, anybody who came onto the property to scope out the house would have easily found that. Yes. So this proves that there was an open entryway, but a lot of people said that he had staged this. Oh, That yeah. this was, that he had broke that window as a way of... Knowing that he was going to murder John Bonet, maybe she was going to talk about the sexual abuse or something else was going on, and he had done that to make this whole intruder theory fit. Yes. Man, that's a lot of work, though. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and that would have to be so premeditated. Right. You know. But this it does prove that there was an open entryway that anyone could have easily come through and that a grown man could fit into, into there. Yeah. yeah, and also, I mean, they had no alarm system or anything, so they were obviously trusting enough that they wouldn't have even thought about it, obviously. Right. Yeah. So one theory is that, and this is one that that forensic investigator came up with, mm-hmm. is that... The intruder came through the basement window and took John Bonet, intending to kidnap her for ransom. And the intention was to put her in this suitcase that they had brought and left by the basement window. Okay. So this would help possibly get her out of the house and maybe make it easier and less suspicious. I mean, somebody carrying yeah. a suitcase from the property oh, yeah. wouldn't be as suspicious as somebody carrying a little girl. That's true. And especially, you know, they wouldn't have parked in the driveway because a car pulling up down the driveway might have alerted them. Yeah. So, something went wrong. And at that point, they ended up killing her. Oh. Instead, but yeah. they had, and they hid the body, but they had left the ransom note, and they just disappeared. Took off when they had the chance. Yeah. Right. There have been some suspects that have been looked at, but were later ruled out by DNA. Okay. Gary Oliva, he was a 32-year-old sex offender that lived in the area at the time. He was arrested in 2000 for drug paraphernalia, and he actually had a magazine cut out of John Bonet in his backpack. Oh. He had lived in the area at, at the time of the murder, and this was enough to get the Ramseys very suspicious, and their private investigator looked into him. Uh-huh. They, the investigator actually found a high school friend now, Okay, so this guy is a registered sex offender. He's found with drug paraphernalia and a magazine cut out of this girl. So they find a high school friend. They, <laughs> I mean, of course, you find a high school, school friend, friend, a high-profile case. How hard is it going to be to get this friend to say Whatever that, you want him to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this high school friend says that at one point around the time of John Bonet's murder... Olivia called him and said that he had hurt a little girl. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, 
Gary Olivia had also tried to strangle his mother with a telephone cord at one point. Oh. He also had a stun gun. And mm-hmm. that was another thing that was pointed out by this forensic investigator. Mm-hmm. So part of the whole thing with John Bonet and the whole thing with, you know, why weren't the parents woken up? Why didn't anybody hear? Why didn't Burke hear? Yeah. There were marks on her body. There were two marks on her back and two marks on her face. Yeah. That matched a stun gun. Oh, okay. Um, So, part of that theory was, and, you know, she had that uh, fracture on her skull. Yes. So, part of the theory was that they had gone into the room and used the stun gun Uh to subdue her. Okay, that makes sense. So, they had used the stun gun to subdue her, and they had to use it twice to get her... Yeah. You know, to get Incapacitated. her to work. Yeah. yeah. They got her into the basement, and she still wasn't really... But they. But at this point, she's two to three floors down. Yeah. Nobody's hearing anything. Yeah. They put tape over her mouth. She's got her arms so and yeah, probably her legs also tied. Yeah. And my thought is probably her legs tied too, and that's the cord that they use. Yeah. So they they have this done, and she's struggling. So they take the cord and they probably wrapped it around her neck. Yeah. To maybe try to get her to pass out. Possibly. Possibly. Yeah. And then they find they can't get her into the suitcase. Oh, no. Maybe yeah. she's struggling too much or she doesn't fit. Yeah. And so they are trying to figure out what to do. And she is not cooperating. And so they're strangling her and to get her to subdued. Yeah. And at some point she's sexually assaulted. Yeah. But... When they hit her over the head and cracked her skull, there wasn't really bleeding inside. Mm-hmm. So either she was hit with a flashlight or she was dropped. Yeah. But she was almost dead at that point. Wow. Yeah. Um, because there wasn't bleeding inside the brain yeah. like there would have been had she been alive. Okay. So... Really, she died from the strangulation. Yeah. At that point, they just left her and left. And then, obviously, never followed up on the ransom call Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But this guy had a stun gun. He had tried to strangle his mother at one point. Yeah. And had called this friend and said that he had hurt a little girl. Yeah. Okay. But his DNA didn't match. Okay. Yeah. Now, there could have been more than one person. Person, maybe, possibly. Yeah. Michael Helgoth was a suspect for a very short while. Yeah. So, this guy, he was an electrician who worked at a local salvage. And to me, this wasn't fair at all. He had a dispute with Ramsey over some sort of property. Yeah. And so... The Ramses named him as a suspect. Oh, because this guy was young. He was like in his twenties, 
And when it got out that he was a suspect, he actually committed suicide. Oh, that's horrible. And then he was cleared by DNA. Man. In 2006, John Mark Carr, a former school teacher, confessed to the murder. Okay. He was living in Thailand at the time to evade child pornography charges in the U.S. He actually reached out to a Colorado professor, Michael Tracy, through email in regards to a documentary that he was making over the case. He sent all these emails back and forth with this professor and talked to him and everything and finally came back to the U.S., to do an interview and, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. And was arrested. <laughs> but he claimed that he had accidentally killed John Bonet during a love game. I mean, he went into this great detail and everything, but it was later found that all of the detail he was using in his confession uh-huh. was detail that was released to the press. Yeah. There wasn't anything that wasn't Already released. known, yeah. So, and his DNA didn't match, and police couldn't place him in Boulder at the time of the murder, so it was determined he was just a pedophile looking for fame. Yeah. He was arrested, though. Yeah. Yeah, on other charges. On those, you know... <laughs> yeah. Child pornography charges, charges he was he trying, was trying to, to get evade. away. <laughs> the housekeeper, Linda Huffman Poe, was also a suspect. She and her husband, Mervyn, who worked as a handyman, had a key to the house. They didn't really fit the profile. The police thought this was a man in his mid to late 30s that had done this. But Linda was very vocal on her belief that Patsy had killed her daughter. She believed that Patsy had killed her daughter on accident and they had staged this murder. Yeah. She had asked for a loan of several thousand dollars and had been denied by Patsy in the weeks leading up to the murder. Uh-huh. And so the theory was that John Bonet would trust Linda and would have followed her to the basement. Linda uh-huh. had a key to the house. She knew the home. She had access to John's study where his financial ledger was kept. Okay. She knew the family's schedule. She also knew that Patsy used the back staircase. And so she knew she could leave the note on those stairs. And it would be found. Yeah. Yes. She, there was also, she could have slipped away from her family's home that night very easily. Her husband was a very sound sleeper. He didn't know for sure if she'd been there all night. Yeah. There was just a lot that could have happened, but the evidence was all circumstantial. The DNA was male. She was not really cleared, but she was never a real suspect. Okay. There was also the one guy, the Santa. Oh, that family yeah. Friend. Okay, yeah. He was looked at at one point. Yeah. He was ruled out by DNA. Now, he was very hurt because the Ramses had named him. Yeah. And this had come up after, you know, Dominay after that had come out about that secret Santa visit. Yeah. And everything because he had played Santa many times before, but he had come in and 
He had told John Bonet at one time that he was Santa's nephew. Oh. So that he could come and see her, and he called her his special yeah, friend. Uh, yeah. At one point, John Bonet had given him like a little bottle of glitter uh-huh. that he kept with him at all the time. That's weird. He had taken this glitter in with him for heart surgery. Yeah. And when he died, he actually had asked his wife to mix the glitter in with his ashes. That's weird. Right. Yeah. But he denied ever touching her, ever having anything to do with her. He just said that, you know, she was just this amazing little girl that he thought was wonderful. And so, I mean, I don't know. Huh. So, my theory of this whole thing is that this was not a family member, but this was somebody from their inner circle. This was not a stranger. This was not somebody from John's work. Yeah. This was somebody who'd been at the house many times, who knew the house, who she recognized and trusted who was probably at the Christmas party that night. Yeah. This person came in probably through the basement. They'd probably explored the basement. Saw that it was, They could get in through that window. Had done their study. So this is why she didn't cry out. They might have even stashed a Santa suit down there and had done the whole secret Santa Santa thing. Yeah. Yeah. And had come up and lured her out of bed and taken her down there and sexually assaulted her and killed her and all of that. I don't think this was the first time that they had done this to her. Yeah. I think this might have been an ongoing thing. And maybe the fact that she had talked, maybe she had said something that made them think that she was going to say something. Oh, possibly, yeah. I don't think she's the first or the last child that he's hurt. Yeah. I just think that she happened to be rich. And it was a high-profile thing. Right. Yeah. Now, there was a reporter that had mentioned to police that shortly before John Bonet was killed, she had covered a story about a nine-year-old girl who had been had had an attempted abduction from an area very close to that. Oh yeah. Somebody had broken into the house and had tried to take her out of her bedroom. But the parents woke up and scared them off. Oh, yeah. Police did not look into this any further, did not, hmm. didn't, didn't talk to the parents, it. didn't think it was involved. Yeah. So. Huh. Didn't do anything about it. Do you think we'll ever figure out who killed her? Probably not. Not at this point. I don't think, I don't think there was ever hope of it. The, the scene was so muddled and they screwed it up so badly. Yeah, I hope that we do. Gets closure before he dies. Yeah. Since her mom didn't. Wow. I know, this one kind of haunts me. Yeah. It's just, it's such a horrible, horrible thing for that little girl to have gone through. But somebody out there knows. Yeah. Somebody holds the key to this. They might not even know that they know. 
Possibly, yeah. But I don't know. Man. But that it's is a good one. Yep. the murder mystery of John Benet Ramsey. All right, awesome. Yeah. So we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.